Welcome back to the Free Mind Podcast. We've been talking about all things eschatology and how do we live based on that eschatology? Should we live based on eschatology? Should we be confident? Should we not? What are the different models? All that kind of stuff. Um, But I thought it might be helpful, actually, uh, rather than just continue to talk about the different models at an abstract level, to give like a concrete example of how eschatology um, helps people weigh in on these events and then draw conclusions for, you know, how do we live based on these things? How do we interpret these things that are going on? So, you know, of course, when the stuff popped off with Israel, you saw a lot of dispensational theologians being platformed and, and people are asking them, you know, hey, what does this mean? How does this fit in with Bible prophecy? And that that kind of thing often happens, you know, if you have something like a 9-11 happens or some, some big, you know, event, but especially when it's something to do with Israel and the Middle East and, and wars around the world, that kind of thing, you'll often see this thing where uh, dispensationalists will come in and say, this is, this is what, you know, was spoken of in Ezekiel or Revelation or Matthew. Um, so yeah, I think it can be helpful to, to just understand like the anatomy of what's going on. How are they, how are they putting this stuff together? And so there was, uh, an interview that Glenn Beck had with Max Lucado just a couple weeks ago in response to what went on in Israel. And, you know, it was pretty, he, he kind of hits the markers that I think will, will help land some of the stuff that we've been talking about. And we can, we can kind of weigh in on, on stuff here and there and, and, and think through it. But um, I'm going to highlight a few elements of the interview. I'm not going to play the whole thing because it'd take too long. But, you know, there's, there's a lot of good stuff in it. I think if you were to listen to it, you'd probably feel like, man, this, this gives me the warm fuzzies and, you know, just want to sit sit with a cup of coffee and kind of li- listen to Max Lucado's soothing voice, you know, make me feel better about these events that are going on. And, and I think there is that element and, and he says some good stuff for sure. Glenn Beck, had, you know, Glenn Beck's done a lot of good and, and I appreciate a lot that he has done. Um, but I'm also going to offer some, you know, critiques of, of certain things here and there, or some clarifications, maybe. I'm going to start here about 12 minutes in. If you didn't think World War II was the possibility of Christ returning, I don't know what was wrong with you, uh, except maybe you had read enough of the Bible to go, there's not enough, you know, to say it. Well, so, you know, the truth is a lot of people did think around World War II, you know, there were people saying this is the end and here's why and here's how this fulfills prophecy. So there were people saying that and with a lot of confidence a lot of times. And so um and and some of these folks were people that did know the Bible very well. And part of the reason is is because many of these passages have a lot of uh they're very malleable, you know, um and so they can be kind of uh, you know, stretched to mean to mean different things if you're if you're not careful. So this time, we've got Gog and Magog, Magog. for the very first time <laughs> uh, conspiring against evil, I yeah. mean, against Israel. Yeah. I mean, or, or is, I mean, yeah. nobody knows. Nobody knows. Nobody but knows. But doesn't it, it, it looks. Brother Glenn, it, I mean, all the players are in place. So here's one quick thing to note just related to that is um, Gog and Magog. You know, you hear a lot about about that right now. Um, and Max Lucado's, you know, he's, if you're not watching, he's kind of shaking his head like, yeah, yeah, you know, yep, all the players are in place. Um, this is significant Russia and Iran. And so, you know, this, this idea here is very common, but I want to, I'm going to pull up something real quick here and just 
show you, you know, kind of where this comes from. So part of it, th- there's a couple problems with this idea, and I won't be able to go into much detail on it. So I'm just going to kind of skate through it quickly here. But the first thing to note, you know, this comes primarily from Ezekiel 38 and in uh, the book of Revelation as well. We'll, we'll pop over there in a second, but uh, Revelation 20. So uh, it says, The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, set your face toward Gog of the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshech and Tubal, and prophesy against him and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, chief prince of Meshech and Tubal. So anyways, people have um, tried at certain points to claim that, you know, this has to do with Russia. And and part of that reasoning is there were certain translations that, um, if you can look real quick, I'm going to click on this word for uh, chief here, which is Rosh or Rosh, Rosh. And it's R-O-S-H is the transliteration of the the Hebrew here. And people have connected that with Russia or, you know, this, this, land from the north that was going to come and attack uh, the, the nation of Israel. So um, hold that in mind for a second. I'm going to pop over here and pull up this article from American Vision. Um, a lot of people talk. Well, actually, let me. Um, the first thing you can notice here, I'll try to get this where you guys can see it. Uh, look, looking up these, you know, dictionaries, Hebrew dictionary stuff, the, the word Rosh. It actually just means like the head here, to shake the head as most easily shaken, whether literally or figuratively, meaning something like, you know, the captain, the chief, the beginning, the excellent, the forefront, the head, height, high. So what this has to do with here, it's rightly translated in the English Standard Version is basically it just means the chief prince. It's the, you know, the the head prince is is who this is talking to. Gog of the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshesh and Tubal. So, you know, the idea, I think people connect the sound of the word Rosh and try to connect it to Russia. Um, I don't think you can make that case at a scholarly level, I haven't seen it. Maybe I'll run across it, but I have. I've only ever really seen this come from like the popularizers of it. Um, but let me let me pop over here and read a little bit of this real quick. Pro- prophecy writers, it says, have been using Ezekiel thirty-eight and thirty-nine for centuries to make similar claims about what was going to happen in their day. David Cooper's book from nineteen forty carried this title: "When Gog's Armies Meet the Almighty in the Land of Israel." Harry Rimmer's The Coming War and the Rise of Russia was also published in 1940. How Lindsay's The Late Great Planet Earth included a chapter on how Russia was the Gog of Ezekiel. I have a long plane record of a message delivered by Jack Van Impey, or Imp, uh, in 1969 about, quote, the coming war with Russia according to the Bible, where, why, and when. Uh, I'm going to skip down here. It says, the arguments for this view are way off base. The KJV reads, Chief Prince. I think the New King James is the one that says Rush, a couple other versions maybe, but not most of them. Most of them, I think, agree with this reading, Chief Prince, um, 38, 2, 3, and 39, 1 of Ezekiel. But others translated it as the Prince of Rush, or Rosh. Ray Comfort, for example, wrote an article in 1991 where he argued, without a doubt, quote-unquote, this refers to, quote, modern Russia. The Hebrew word Rosh means chief or head and has nothing to do with Russia. More about this below. 
He then quoted Smith's Bible Dictionary Lang's commentary on Ezekiel from 1865 through 1880 and the always authoritative, quote-unquote, <laughs> New Schofield Reference Bible for support. Ray doesn't offer any real exegetical or historical study of the topic. He's relying on the works of others, which is, you know, you have to do. But then once you check the works of others, in this case, you, you see that it's not really doing the job that he is presupposing that they're doing. For centuries, commentators have tried to figure out the when and who of the fulfillment of the prophecy. In most cases, whoever the world power was at the time became the fulfillment candidate. Here are some. So that's that's important. That That's what I meant by these these same passages get used because they can kind of be stretched because they don't. there's no real reference. There's no objective reference that they're appealing to to draw these conclusions many times. They're just kind of. Yeah, uh, malleable projections. So, well, let me read that one more time. For centuries, commentators have tried to figure out the when and who the fulfillment of the prophecy. In most cases, whoever the world power was at that time became the fulfillment candidate. Here are some examples. In early Christian terms, Gog and Magog were often identified with the Romans and their emperor. Eusebius of Caesarea seems to have been the first church father to suggest this identification. In his view, Gog is the prince of Ross, R-O-S in this case, which stands for the Roman Imperium. In his demonstration of the gospel, Eusebius wrote that the prophet Ezekiel also mentions Gog, naming him ruler of Ros, Mosoe, and Tobel, probably discuss, uh, disguising the city of Rome under the name Ross because empire and power are signified in Hebrew by the word Rosh, since it has the meaning of head. So that was Eusebius there. And um, you can see here, this is a chart from Francis Gumerlach's book, The Day and the Hour, which gives an indication of how current events influence the interpretation of the prophecy over centuries. So you have in the fourth century, Gog and Magog candidate was the Goths. In the fifth, it was the Goths and the Moors. The seventh, it was the Huns. The eighth, Islamic Empire. Tenth, Hungarians. Eleventh, uh, Avars. Fourteenth, Tartars. Fourteenth, uh, also persecutor of the Lollards. It goes on and on. So you can see... Uh, Pope in Spain, 17th century, Native Americans in the 17th century, and the 20th century political leader in land of Russia. So this is this has shifted over the years. Um, Martin Buber's novel, For the Sake of Heaven, based on historical fact, is constructed around the conflict between the Hasidic masters on whether Napoleon was to be identified with Gog. So back to Comfort here. Comfort argues that the Ezekiel prophecy is about Russia and Iran and other current Middle East players. There is no mention of either Russia or Iran in Ezekiel 38 and 39. Finding Russia is based in part on the use of the Hebrew word Rosh, which is what I was saying before. A word that's used more than 600 times in the Old Testament and is still in use today. The first word in Genesis 1-1 includes the word Rosh in the beginning, which means at the head of time. Here are Hingstenberg's comments on the meaning of Rosh. Gog is prince over Magog, moreover chief prince, king of kings over Meshish and Tubal, the Moshi and Tiberini, sorry, these words are hard, (laughs) Tiberini, who had their own kings but appear here as vassals of Gog. Many expositors render instead of chief prince, prince of Rosh, Meshish and Tubal, but the poor Russians have been here, very unjustly arranged among the enemies of God's people. Rosh, as the name of the people, does not occur in all the New Testament. Uh, Benjamin Netanyahu was the head, quote-unquote, or Rosh, 
or prime minister of the Israeli government as the podium shows below. So same word, and it has it um, in has it uh, highlighted or boundary here. So the reading of Ezekiel 38.2 should be read as the chief prince of, chief Rosh prince of Meshach and Tubal, as the King James Version has it, and not the prince of Rosh that is the ruler of modern-day Russia. Even Charles Ryrie here, the author of the Ryrie Study Bible, big dispensational author, uh, theologian, acknowledges that Rosh is not a proper name. The Prince of Rosh is better translated as the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal. Ryrie, like Comfort, was a dispensationalist, but he knew his Hebrew better than Schofield or Comfort. Schofield, by the way, was a lawyer. Now that's bad. He wasn't a theologian, what not a pastor. So a lot of the stuff, you know, he would have just missed. Skipping down here, the modern Hebrew spelling of Russia reading from left to right looks nothing like the word, the Hebrew word Rosh. The only common Hebrew letter is Resh, the R. So you can see there if you're looking here, Rusia in Hebrew is you know completely different spelling, almost no commonality at all. Uh, you know, I think you got enough there. The the big idea that I wanted to just express there was, you know, you get these these popular level expressions kind of really, really sloppy at times where you just throw this thing on there and it's like, it's like, it's like a bunch of leaky buckets, you know, and so water's dripping out of it. But you, if you keep throwing them up there and, and people think, oh, this is a solid bucket. Um, but it really turns out not to be. And so that's why, you know, if, if you, if you are holding to the dispensational framework, all good, just, I would say like, try to be careful with not just yeah man this is a fulfillment of prophecy and and do it in a doing it in a way that's kind of sloppy like this now as bad as that stretch is for trying to link that with to Russia it, that many dispensationalists do based on like, Schofield reference bible and some of these other resources that that are kind of misunderstanding that that's not actually the worst part of what uh Glenn Beck here is saying and the Max Lucado's kind of shaking his head too and saying, yeah, all the players are in place. Because really quickly, look at, let's look at uh, Revelation 20. So on the, on the dispensational model, you know, you have, they, they take Revelation 19, 20, 21 as chronological and literal in the sense that, you know, 19 is, is a description of, of the return of Christ. 20 sets up the millennial kingdom. And then 20, it, the end of that millennial kingdom moves into uh, 21, the, the final judgment, new heavens, new earth. Uh, but you see here, looking at 20, this is where Gog and Magog comes into play in the book of Revelation. So uh, let me see where I want to start here. Let's start here just at verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit in a great chain. And he sees the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. So this is the millennium. This is what all these models are, you know, centered around this right here. Bound him for, thir- for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not be able to deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. So on the pre-mill view, remember, dispensational pre-mill, you got the rapture that's imminent, could come at any time. But when it comes, it kicks in the seven-year period, the final week of Daniel, 70 weeks, ended by the physical return of Jesus to the earth. That's when he sets up his millennial kingdom on earth, his thousand-year reign, and then after that, the final judgment. So you see that thousand years there. 
Um, I'm going to skip down for the sake of time here to verse seven. So it says, and when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea, and they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So that that that's actually really problematic for him because Gog and Magog don't come into play until the end of the thousand-year period. That's where they come when Satan is released that final time after having been thrown on the abyss. And so you can see here that this is, you know, it, it, when he's saying all the players are in place, Gog and Magog, you know, that's what Glenn Beck's hinting at as well. That would be like, you know, if you think about that, the thousand years, like, you know, the year 1023, thousand years before now, how many things have happened since that? Like you would, Gog and Magog don't come into play yet. Like they don't need to come for another thousand. And, you know, if Jesus, you know, if the rapture happened tomorrow, another thousand and seven years. And so this idea, it's just, again, it's like piling stuff that doesn't really work when you look at the details and it's just sloppy in that way. Okay, so the big thing, the big difference between right now and even World War II is the existence of the state of Israel. Right. I mean, that's the prophecy. Nobody, I, I'm sympathetic with some student of prophecy from 200 years ago who says, well, this is never going to happen. How in the world could the Jews ever repopulate the nation of Israel? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just the greatest miracle. Mm-hmm. And so that, that miracle, that sign, it seems to me, Glenn, announced that we're in the final, the final days. All right, so... This is another big point that, um, like, I think it was uh, Tim LaHaye that calls this the, the, the state of Israel coming into being in 1948. That's the super sign, right, that lets us know that we're in the end of days. And, you know, because of that, you had, you know, people that took that and the, the Olivet Discourse that said all these things will happen in this generation. They interpreted this generation, which the one he was talking to, to mean that generation the th- in which these signs start being fulfilled and generation being roughly 40 years. That's why you had books written like 88 Reasons Why Jesus is Returning uh, Before 1988 or By 1988 because you got that 40-year period that was that generation, so he had to come back by then. And, you know, so there's been all kinds of stuff, all kinds of speculative prophetic uh, books written and all this kind of stuff surrounding uh, this the the coming into existence of the nation of Israel in 1948 um, again I don't have a lot of time to go into this in detail but I will um, I will try to skate through it quickly here's a here's a book written by Gary DeMar called 10 prophecy myths exposed in this chapter. Um, it's a long chapter, so I'll only be able to, you know, skim the surface here. But it's called "The Myth That the Modern State of Israel Is a Sign That the Rapture Is Near." Um, in addition to dispensationalism's insistence that the application of God's redemptive program change in the New Testament from Israel to a new entity called the Church, another fundamental principle of dispensationalism is that there are no prophetic signs prior to the rapture. Now, this may strike some of you as odd, this is me talking here, um, because 
we, you know, we've been inundated with all these books telling us these are the signs of the time. This, you know, these are the signs that prove Jesus is coming back. But I was surprised when I started looking at this in more detail that actually it, it is a fundamental feature of traditional dispensational theology that there is no, um, there are no signs before the rapture. That what what is confusing is the same people that will say that I, I might get into this more next time because I'm I'm going to try to do an, a similar episode where I talk through one of D, uh, Dr. Jeremiah's um, interviews around the same time um, on this topic because he says it explicitly there you know there's no signs that come before the rapture but he also talks about the signs that show that we're in the world of the end and so how can this be the case how do you how do you hold these things people have recognized. Uh, I would say the contradiction in it, they would say the tension. But basically, for that reason, many people have called it the schizophrenia of dispensational theology. And there are there are quite a few dispensational theologians who have really, really taken other dispensational theologians to task, saying, like, you can't say that these are signs of the end times because the rapture doesn't have any, any signs attached to it. Um, it was... Uh, it was imminent from the very beginning of the of the new covenant. So at any moment, the rapture could come, and, and there was warnings that they had to be ready at any moment. So that that meant there was no signs that would precede it. The people that give the signs respond to that, and will say something like, you know, well, yeah, there's no signs for the rapture; it could come at any time. But there are signs for Jesus, the second advent, that's supposed to happen seven years later. The problem is those things being attached, the sign for the second one is going to be the sign for the first one as well, unless you say the signs come after the, the secret rapture. Now, that that is the position that uh, dispensationalists like John R. Rice take. He says he wrote that, this book in, the, in 1950, and he said, you, you guys got to stop talking about these signs of the rapture. The signs don't happen until after the rapture. There are no signs prior to the rapture. So that was actually a more consistent view. So I'm going to read through this, but that will probably surprises you that dispensational theology traditionally held there were no prophetic signs prior to the rapture. So this is uh, DeMar writing here, not one. There are, there are no prophetic signs prior to the rapture. Not one, zilch, nada, none. This is because, according to dispensationalists, the church had its beginning at Pentecost. At that point, the prophetic clock as it relates to Israel stopped. The end of Daniel's 69th week, 483 years, it will not start again until the rapture, the start of the 70th week, which they argue is still a future event, Jesus coming for his church. That is different from the second coming. So the rapture on that view, the secret rapture is different from the second coming on dispensationalists where Jesus comes with his church. Okay, so the first one comes, he comes in heaven for his church, secret rapture as the second coming. Then the advent is Jesus coming with his church back to the earth. Again, following the dispensational hermeneutic, the so-called church age has no prophetic history in the Old Testament. This means that no Old Testament prophecy can find any fulfillment from the time of Pentecost when the church age had its start and the rapture when the church age is said to end. The rapture is said to end the church age and begin God's dealing with Israel again after nearly 2,000 year and counting postponement. Dispensationalists believe the rapture is always imminent. That is, it can take place at any time during the church age. So let that, you know, hit you for a second. That, that's been the traditional view. Like there's, no, there's nothing that needs to happen before the rapture. Therefore, there's no signs. 
Gerald B. Stanton puts it this way, the rapture is signless. And so it is so presented in the scripture that every generation may enjoy the hope, challenge, and other blessings of his appearing. So that's what gives every generation the blessed hope of having that thought that, man, this could be the eternal generation. The rapture could happen at any moment. Take note of the phrase, he says, every generation, because it will serve as an important piece to the rapture puzzle that is often missed by those who hold to an any-moment rapture theory. According to Stanton and every other dispensationalist, it means the rapture could have taken place in Paul's generation, 1 Thessalonians 4.17, and any subsequent generation thereafter. Jesse Forrest Silver wrote that the apostolic fathers, quote, expected the return of the Lord in their day, unquote. Was the stage being set in the post-apostolic period. So me again here. Um, in other words, if it, if they if it was imminent during the time of the apostolic fathers, that means the stage was already set. Then, in other words, the players, as Lucato said, the players were already there. Everything that was there that needed to be. So nothing else needed to happen. So if that's the case, then nothing else that's happening now can be an indicator that we are moving closer to the end. Uh, He goes on, how could that be when all the major players that dispensationalists say are in place today didn't even exist, including what Tim LaHaye says is the super sign, the return of the Jews to their land. If the doctrine of imminency is true to itself, the rapture could have taken place prior to the destruction of Jerusalem when the city was sacked by the Romans in AD 70, or it could have happened in 1000, 1066, 1492, 1517, 1776, 2001, or today. In theory, the rapture could have happened any time after Pentecost. Here's how dispensationalist John MacArthur, who is a representative of the signless any moment rapture view, explains the position. He says, it could have, it could happen at any moment. It is a signless imminent event. It is the next thing. No signs necessary. There are signs before the second coming, but there are no signs before the rapture. We live in the light that at any moment, in any fraction of a moment, Trump sounds, the angels call, angel calls, and we go. This is the next event in God's plan. It's only for those who know and love Christ. We're here to serve you and help you. So I'm going to I'm going to just uh, pause there because this goes on and on and gives a bunch of evidence, the challenges with that view. But I do want to skip to the end here and point out one more thing. And then I'm going to stop interrupting so much on this interview. Um, but Gary DeMar interviewed uh, or sorry, debated Dr. Paige Patterson. Uh, in 1991, he says, and here's what Patterson said. He, he's, a dis, he's a dispensational premillennialist, the president of Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. And he said this, the present state of Israel is not the final form. The present state of Israel will be lost eventually. And Israel will be run out of the land again, only to return when they accept the Messiah as Savior. Now, I want you to pause on that for a second, because... This is another uh, potential challenge for the super sign view that LaHaye had and that Lucato's expressing here, because if there are no signs, for all we know, Israel could pop up and then it could go away and all the Jews could be dispersed again and the rapture could still happen down the road and then God could bring them back. Moreover, Patterson argues that the current state 
of that Israel's in right now can't be the one that was prophesied by the Old Testament. And typically dispensationalists are literal in their hermeneutic, especially with the Torah uh, and its fulfillment of the um, prophecies toward national Israel. And so, but what Patterson's arguing here is that actually the state that's there now is more problematic because it would have to be dispersed because the only promise is that believing Israel would come back and be gathered together as a nation, not unbelieving. And here's, here's what he appealed to in DeMar asked this question. Why would he say such a thing? Well, because he knows that Israel's return had to be in belief both the northern and southern kingdoms went into captivity because of unbelief. It makes no sense to argue that their return, either from exile or from post-AD 70 diaspora, would be in unbelief be given what we read in Deuteronomy 30, 1 through 3. So this is Deuteronomy. So it shall be when all of these things have come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you. And you call them to mind in all nations where the Lord your God has banished you. And here's what he has in bold, uh, bold print. So, and you return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and soul according to all that I command you today, you and your sons then, then the Lord your God will restore you from captivity. And have compassion on you and will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. So DeMar says, God has set the standard. It's no wonder that dispensationalist John R. Rice wrote the following, quote, Thus the trouble in Jerusalem and the dispersion of Jews among all the nations of Jerusalem throughout this whole age is simply a continuation of the punishment of God upon the whole race of Jews, unquote. That was Rice's uh, view there. So I think that just shows you like, you know, the, of course, dispensationalists, progressive dispensationalists, like, uh, I think it's Daniel Bach would, would, I would imagine he would have good responses to this. And I'm going to be looking, looking for some of those. But I think right now, this popular version that comes through people like Lucado that, that most people kind of grab onto in, in the American culture, um, do, just doesn't, it doesn't have nearly as much weight as it's thought to have. It has a lot of problems when you start looking at the details, things that, that kind of like, eh, okay, maybe, but, no, but definitely not, not in a certain way. And in fact, you know, maybe not in a way that's even that plausible, but you know, here we go. Because so many things, Israel has to be a nation for many of the prophecies to be fulfilled, namely the reconstruction of the temple. And so there has to be a national Israel in order for many of these things to happen. Well, now it, it, it wasn't there 200 years ago, 300 years ago, 400 years ago, but it's there right now. And so I think the, the, the discussion of what we're seeing on the world stage is a discussion that we need to have both politically, but even more important, spiritually. Because something is happening here that has never happened in any generation in history. I don't know when Christ is returning. I don't. Mm -hmm. No one knows. Yeah. But we are told to look for the signs. In fact, Jesus was critical of those religious leaders. He said, you see Red Scott morning, you know, it's dawn, but here I've given you sign after sign and you have not watched. And so you can notice there, thankfully, you know, I think people are scared off from making predictions now for the most part. I mean, you still have your Herald campings, but, um, I think people have learned not to, not to give it a year and write a book on a year. 
but the in essence he's still saying you know like like many of the things this is a clear sign that we're you know we're very close to the end and if if you were to push them and maybe ask them where they weren't going to be recorded and held accountable in many cases i think you what you would get is something like man i'd be you know i'd be surprised if we're here another 20 30 years that kind of thing so the the idea is that we're probably in close to the last you know generation here and these these things are signs of that and then he Again, appeals, you have the the schizophrenia thing that I was talking about, but he appeals to the Olivet Discourse, particularly in a certain part of it that's going to be very important to go through. We're going to have to go through that in more detail later. Um, But the part that he appeals to actually more plausibly fits the first century um, where Jesus is speaking to this generation that's actually fulfilled in the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. Um, and so if, if that's the case, if that's the right reading of that, what he's talking about, then what he's saying here has nothing to do with seeing the, the signs of the times for the second advent of Christ and the, you know, the end of days. So there's an expectation that in addition to viewing what's happening geopolitically, we have to interpret it spiritually. And so another, one last thing here. So Lucado is saying, you know, you have to interpret what's happening here biblically so you can apply it not only politically but also spiritually. So that's I think that's why a lot of like people who are not Zionists get real nervous about this kind of dispensational theology because it actually gets um, taken up into a lot of people's geopolitical viewpoints as well and has real life, you know, implications from it. And so it'd be, you know, just important to make sure, man, you're getting this theology right. That like I've said so many times here recently. You know, when the Bible was being put together, it's not like it's not like God said, you know, the Jesus part. We went all soft. Let's go out with a bang. You know, let's freak everybody out in the last <laughs> book of the Bible. He didn't do that. He gave that to us so we would not be freaked out. Mm. He gave it to us so we'd look and we'd know and we'd know mm. that great change is coming. Yes. yes. Right? Yes. He did these things not to scare us, but, but to prepare us. He right. told us these things so that we would not panic. See to it that you are not troubled, Jesus said, the night before his crucifixion. And then in the Olivet Discourse or the Sermon about End Times, Jesus said in Luke 21, lift up your eyes, your redemption draws near when you see these things coming. So rather than panic, which nobody faults anybody for their anxiety these days. <laughs> um, he, he had a big Eva moment there. So, you know, uh, he, he realized he was about to draw an implication that, you know, because we know these things, we don't have to panic. Oh, but, uh, you know, I better not say anything about people who struggle with mental health or anxiety because, you know, ooh, that, that'd get me in trouble, you know. <laughs> but knowing what's next prepares us to face what's now. And if we can know what's next, if we can begin to get a semblance of what's about to happen, then I believe that's a, that allows us to land at a spot that says, okay, God said something like this was going to happen. I'm going to look up. I'm going to make sure my relationship with him is solid, and I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray, and I'm going to lean heavily into God's word for help. All right, so I think what you'll what you'll see there, too, he keeps saying, well, no one knows, but then, you know, because we know what's coming— Again, there's a there's a bit of that uh, there's a bit of that schizophrenia going on there that, that that tends to happen in these discussions. And well, we don't really know what's going, what's coming, but you know, but because we know what's coming, we we can not fear, you know, that kind of thing. That aside, though, notice the implication he draws there. You know, we need to pray, read our Bible. So it's toward it's toward inward piety, and I think this is the biggest. Uh, 
all theology aside, notice these things and how they connect, how they kind of naturally flow from these ideas. Because when you have this idea, man, where, you know, it's just, it's about to spiral downward. Um, things are only going to get worse. Well, what can I do? I just have to, I, I just have to not panic. I can't give in to anxiety, but never is there a thought of like, we got to roll up our sleeves and get to work and, and actually go out in the public square and, and actually change things and move them in the opposite direction. That would not be the thought. So skipping ahead here a little bit, let's continue on. If our response to this global crisis was really a nation of repentance and prayer. I mean, what if, what if we really got to the point where we said, Lord, we don't have any solution. We see bitterness uh, in Iran. We know that some, nucle- some deranged leaders just one bad mood away from pushing a red button. Mm-hmm. We're living in fear. Our kids don't know their gender. There's a suicide crisis or epidemic taking our, we, we, what if What if <laughs> there was just this collective desire to get down on our knees and say, Lord, we're crying out to you in desperation? Uh, it's what it's going to require. It's going to require. I, I, I don't know. That's not something you can orchestrate or mm-hmm. fake, but I believe that's that's our next step. That's our only next step. Uh, we're not going to diplomatically talk our way through this, you know, Glenn. This is a spiritual battle. This is a spiritual battle. Uh, you know, you're not, the last time I was here, I talked about my new book. Uh, uh, I want to play so, this again because I think it's interesting. Listen to this mm-hmm. one more time. You know what? If our response to this global crisis was really a nation of repentance and prayer. So I, I'm, I'm signing Max Lucado up for Christian nationalist. <laughs> he, he wants the nation to repent and, uh, and pray, which is awesome. Um, but, you know, it's funny because when you think about that, you know, what, what would it look like f- for the nation, for the, you know, he, t- he said collectively to repent? Would that, would that you know, would, would that look like leaders repenting? Would it look like, you know, the, the Democratic Party repenting of, pushing LGBTQ ideology on kids and uh, child sacrifice and the Republican Party repenting for basically being the Democratic Party 10 years after um, what it looked like the Biden regime, you know, um, admitting inter- election interference and uh, <laughs> money laundering in Ukraine. What, w- what would that look like? And, and actually, you know, paying back restitution, maybe like Zacchaeus did. Um, what would it look like maybe for Hollywood to repent? You know, that it w- I think that so 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 that's one aspect. I don't think that's what he means. I, uh, clearly, I'm I'm kind of joking. You know about the, him being a Christian nationalist. He, that would be the last thing he'd ever want to sign up for, of course. But um, I do think oftentimes when you hear uh, pastors say that kind of you know Big Eva speech, it's like they have this picture of like you know the church in America. What if we really got down and, and repented and sought the Lord? And the funny thing about that is, you know, a lot of the people, if you were paying attention in the last several years, a lot of the the churches that were leading the way in that, like really repenting for real sins, um, not not like Max Lucado did when he did a faux repentance for racism when the woke stuff was going on, but like actual real repentance um, for, for things that America's doing now. Um and things that the church is engaged in those, those groups by and large were called, you know, Christian nationalists and, and, uh, you know, dominion theologians and that kind of thing. And they were basically shunned by kind of the card carrying big Eva 
class. You know, they they were the ones that were willing to actually stand up against the globalist evil that was going on, and and just you know, people like Max. And and I say this with receipts. If you're interested, I can I can send you stuff. But if you'll remember back. You know, Max Lucado was super anti-Trump, which is fine. That's neither here nor there. But he was baffled by Christians that supported Trump to the to the point that he wrote this big blog that, you know, he was baffled. And then he went on this little tour and basically not tour, but like speaking, giving interviews to, to organizations like NPR, which is one of the most anti-God, you know, Christian bashing organizations out there where he was just expressing like he couldn't believe these, you know, awful Christians would support an awful man like this. Um, that's, you know, that's, that's, you could, you could maybe excuse him for that one miss. Um, but then he goes on to endorse Jen Hatmaker, uh, one of the worst progressive, you know, Christian voices out there. In fact, just, uh, two days ago, I saw that he's getting ready to do this, to speak at this conference alongside other speakers like Preston Sprinkle, who might actually be the more the conservative voice at this conference, joining a lot of, uh, pro LGBTQ quote unquote Christians that are trying to, uh, make evangelicals more affirming. So, you know, it's just, it, he sounds great. Like when he says this stuff, like I said, you get the warm fuzzies, but if you really look at the track record and you hear that, it kind of like, it kind of makes you sick. You're like, just, you know, man, what are you talking about? If we would repent, like we, the, the, the greatest people we've had that have had the courage within the church to actually do that, to actually pray and to actually go to war in this spiritual battle have been the very ones that have been shunned and and spoken against by this this kind of class of evangelicals. So anyways, um you know, I don't mean to be unkind about that, but I do think there's there's something there that that is a legitimate criticism someone could bring. I'm fascinated by end times. I know there are many opinions, okay, mm-hmm. so I preface it. But it seems to me that the next big event after Christ returns to the earth is going to be that thousand-year reign of Christ on earth. Have you talked much about that or thought much about I, that? So here's, you know, he's going to sketch out the pre-mill, and he is pre-trib dispensationalist pre-mill, not historic pre-mill, but pre-trib dispensationalist. So you'll kind of get that quick sketch here. A lot about it. I don't talk about it much, yeah. but I've thought a lot yeah. about it. I think it's... um one, to naturally get people to change. I mean, we saw people change for about, maybe if you're lucky, a week after 9-11. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the change, to affect that kind of change in people, means the suffering prior to has got to be very memorable. Yeah. Um, and then the joy of truth returning through him has got to be mm. just wonderful. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, in case somebody has never heard this conversation, yeah. what we're talking about is described in Revelation chapter 20. Uh, six times there's a reference to the millennium, and it's a thousand-year reign of Christ on earth, and it fulfills many prophecies and keeps many promises. Uh, the reason it's really relevant to our discussion, and especially what you're emphasizing, is because the thousand-year reign of Christ announces that Christ will have his garden of Eden. What was established and announced in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, that God would reign in a paradise with his people. They would reign together. Mm. That was his declaration from the beginning. Now, the assumption that many people make is, well, Adam and Eve blew it, so God changed his plans. <laughs> that verse is not in the Bible. No. Not in the Bible. Docu- so real quick, that, that yeah, so he's describing that position. Now, of course, on the other end of it, the A-mill, post-mill side, 
they would say, no, of course God didn't stop his plan. In fact, they would say that the dispensationalist is the one that kind of has this weird thing where, you know, Jesus offered the kingdom, they rejected it. So then the parentheses of the church happened. It really wasn't part of his original plan, but then he's going to bring his real plan together in the, the millennium. Um, they would, you know, respond at least classical and revised dispensational models are like that. But on the post mill a mill model, God has kept his promise. And you, you're going to hear him talk in a, in a little bit here about the seed and soil of Abraham, but he has kept his promise on that view by engrafting the Gentiles, all the nations being blessed, and now he's discipling all the nations, which is, was part of the original plan uh, to save humanity by crushing the head of the serpent. And we are actually involved, like Christ, you know, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him when he died on the cross, rose again, ascended to the Father, given now he's putting every enemy under his feet. The last enemy to be defeated will be death when he returns, and we're part of that process. We've been seated in heavenly places, and we're you're ruling and reigning with him now to taking ground for the kingdom. So um, the the that would be the A-mill, post-mill way to understand how God is keeping that original promise of crushing um, Satan and basically Psalm 2, Psalm 110, putting every enemy under his feet. God is a covenant-keeping God. So he has announced this. He has declared that this planet would be a paradise and we would reign with him. That's what Adam and Eve were told to do. Mm-hmm. They walked with God in the cool of the evening. It was intimate. It was, it was warm. It was moral. They weren't hiding, their, uh, hiding behind clothing. Even. It was just a beautiful setting. So the, the teaching on the millennium says God's going to keep that promise. And Revelation chapter 20 describes the day God does it. And it's after he returns, Revelation chapter 19, and then Revelation chapter 20, and then Revelation chapter 21 announces the new heaven and the new earth. So that, yeah, that's a good presentation of that. So on that view, that time is to come. On the post mill a mill, that time is here in a sense. It's not. It's con- it's uh, inaugurated, but it will be consummated. So it's the kingdom. It's the the seed that grows into a tree. It progressive the leaven that grows through the lump, um, and eventually we'll see that fully. But that millennium is something that we are in now. Um, I would say more post mills would say that than the than the classical version, which did look forward to a more golden age when the nations would be Christianized. But that that'll give you the distinctions between the views on that point. For a thousand years in between this life and our eternal state, the new heaven and new earth, you and I will reign with Christ on earth. And we'll be in glorified bodies, that is to say, bodies that are made perfect, equipped for eternity. And then there'll be people who are still on earth in mortal bodies. And I know this sounds fictional and fantastical, but it's it's part of the story. And I'm so he's saying it's part of the Bible story. But, you know, of course, the other side would say, no, that's part of the model of dispensational premillennialism that Lucato and others are reading into the Bible um, that does include some of these weird scenarios where you get glorified bodies uh, intertwined with, you know, at a massive scale. You know, he's going to talk about how Jesus was like that with the disciples. But, you know, when you begin to think about that, a thousand-year period where, you know, resurrected saints are living among, you know, a seed of Adam and Eve that aren't, you know, that are um, mortal, you you do kind of get this weird scenario. And I think that's one of the, the byproducts of millennialism, pre-mill in general, both dispensational and historic, you know, that, that kind of has you picturing some very, very odd um, scenarios there. Could be true, you know, but it is good to note that. 
about it about it. But there will be people who become Christ followers even during that time of tribulation. And they will enter into that time of the thousand-year reign. Uh, so we'll, we will it, – it's just like when Christ, after he rose from the dead, was in a glorified body with mortal people. Mm-hmm. So it will happen yet again. I, I love the fact that, that... – So, yeah, I'm going to um... – just a couple more clips here we're going to go through and then wrap it up. But uh, I think this is this is going to be worth it here uh, just to see where this goes. So next segment here. Talking about Israel again, but God made a covenant in Genesis 12 and then Genesis right. 15. He reaffirmed that covenant. He gave Abraham this land and he gave them soil. And then he said, through your seed, the, the world will be blessed. So it's a covenant of soil and a covenant of seed. And then God affirmed that in Genesis 15 with that mysterious moment in which there are uh, there's a carcass and he passes between the carcass, the torn carcass of the animal. And there's a flaming pot and a, and a burning uh, flame, a flaming pot. And it's God walking between that. And, and, and that was the way of saying, may what has happened to this animal happen to me if I break this covenant. And so here's God making a covenant. Now, we can acknowledge the covenant or we can ignore the covenant. Mm-hmm. But the covenant is there. And it's, it's a governing principle in history. So I think really that if you want to understand what's about to happen in the future, you go back and you look at these covenants right. that God has made, yeah. and you can tell that's where we're headed. So that's dispensational kind of Zionism in action, right? So you see there uh, the covenant God made with Abraham is one of seed and soil, and that he, you know, because of that, it's going to be a literal fulfillment in the future, national Israel, um, where all these things will happen. They'll be back in the land that they're owed, and it'll be the the, the, the physical seed of Abraham, or at least the cultural national uh, seed. There's debates about that because people are saying, you know, well, you know, 90% or I don't know what it is, but of the Israelis right now, the Ashkenazi Jews don't actually have genetically go back to Abraham. And, and there's debate about what makes a Jew physically or ethnically and all that. So but not even getting into that, um, just to mention here, I think the other perspective, of course, the A-mail, post-mail, is that God did fulfill those promises. The seed of Abraham is is that spiritual seed. It's it's Christ himself and, and then the people that are in Christ, both Jew and Gentile. That would be the spiritual seed. That would be the fulfillment of the promise of that God gave to Abraham there. And then same thing with the soil. Some, some post-mill, A-mill interpret that spiritually as like all the earth. Well, they would say maybe that the, the heavenly realm um, is the, the promised land, heaven itself, or they might say in the new heavens, new earth, as God recreates things that, you know, the land, all of the land, or even to some sense, the post mill would say, as every nation is Christianized, you know, that is the land that God promised to Abraham. And it expands from this one Palestinian territory to the entire earth anyways. But that'll, that'll give you the perspective that you get the literal fulfillment on the, 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 dispensational side you get more of the uh the spiritual and maybe expanded fulfillment uh on the email postmail side so last quote here is going to basically say okay well what is what does all this mean and what do we do with this um based on on what you're telling us here and i do think this isn't every dispensationalist obviously but it does give a good uh good model of what i think a lot of common folks take away from this so i think that urges us to try to come up with some coping strategies. So coming to the end of this long talk, right, uh, about end time prophecies being fulfilled, how evil things are, how bad, how uniquely bad things are, and how unique some of these players getting put in place are. 
And he says that urges us basically to come up with some coping strategies. It's going to get worse before it gets better. It's going to get worse before it gets better, right? And what he doesn't mean by that is like we're going to go through the hard time of having to rebuild things and as the things get destroyed around us. No, he's saying things are going to get worse until Christ comes and rescues us, pulls us out of here. We escape this place. So it's going to get worse, going to spiral down. we got to have some coping strategies. I think you just mentioned one of them. Rather than despair, just do the next decent thing. Right. You know, if, if, if there is such evil in the world— then right now I have to decide, okay, I'm not going to treat people that way. And perhaps the best way to uh, mount a personal resistance toward this flood of evil is for me to be kind to the person at the grocery store, you know, or to give up a parking spot, mm-hmm. th- to generate a season of, of decency. And some of the listeners who aren't even, who are not spiritual, you're saying, well, I can do that. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Let's, let's all start right there. Let's be the most decent people that we can be to one another. Um, and so that there it is right there. I think that's a good summary. So when you hear that, what you see is like, man, things are going to get worse. Christ can rescue. We don't know when, but we know what's happening next. So, you know, what can we do? Well, we need coping strategies. We don't want to be anxious. We don't want to panic. What are these coping strategies? Well, one, one thing is just be nice. <laughs> and I, I, honestly, y'all, I think that I think that is part of like where Big Eva has landed us and why they keep moving more and more toward actually the, you know, while they're talking about the mark of the beast and they're talking about the Antichrist, they're carrying water for Antichrist pushes in our culture. And it's because they don't understand the dark forces behind things and how we're called to fight and how we're called to build. Rather, Man, we're going down. Let's just be nice. And to be nice has be re- been redefined in our culture, right? And we got to be, you know, it's it's a therapeutic kind of like, man, I can't make anybody feel bad about their struggles. I can't make them feel bad about, you know, their sexuality or, you know, or, or confront false narratives that the, that the culture is putting in their minds or any of that stuff. Just be nice, man. Let's just be nice. And so I think there you have uh, – Thankfully, some, you know, there are many dispensationalists who are not doing that and are, are standing against the tide of evil. Thank, I'm, I'm like, yes, it's awesome. And I think you can craft a version of it that, that probably leads more toward that. I'm going to try to do that as I'm thinking through this. I'm trying to think through ways of like, okay, how do you, is there a way to adopt this model? but still put more of an emphasis on what God says to do to occupy till he comes to be salt and light and maybe put the other on the, you know, the back burner instead of the front burner. I think there's a way to do that. But I do think when you lean hard into what Max Lucado's serving up here, that, that warm kind of fuzzy, um, you know, this is what God has. Don't resist it. Here's how to cope. And here's how to, you know, not make too many waves going as don't polish the brass on the sinking ship. Don't fight enemies on the sinking ship. Just kind of like, you know, make yourself feel better as it goes down. Cause ultimately before it does, he's going to snatch you out anyway. So, um, I do think we want to move away from that package. So let's, 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 um, I don't know, moving forward, we'll think about ways to, to maybe maybe do a new a new dispensational package <laughs> we'll see so thank you guys uh for joining us uh hopefully this is helpful um yeah let me know if if it is and if you got any questions any thoughts i can send you some more resources stuff i'm i'm looking at and it's helping me think through all this and we uh we'll see you next time thank you yeah.